You're listening to the sermon audio from the Shore Church located in North Vancouver. For more information about the Shore, upcoming events, or to donate, you can head to www.theshorechurch.ca. Good morning. We're in our discipleship series uh, going through the Bible today, and so we've got a lot of information we want to go over. Um, this is going to be a little bit of a different kind of a sermon of sorts. We're going to hit a lot of the Bible, what, you know, what it says about itself, but also some other things as well. And so let me, as we get into this, um, uh, I want to ask you a question. And the question is, like, have you ever tried to convince someone of something? I'm sure you have. Like, like I've, I've been the convincer of many people trying to convince, especially during my youth ministry days, uh, trying to convince people of eating slugs for $5, which happened to, I was pretty good at it, convincing them to do this, convincing uh, people not to do, with any money, just to do stuff. I convinced this one girl to jump into the ocean without any chance of clo- changing clothes. Like, I convinced her to do this without hours of changing clothes until she was completely wet before this fall retreat that we went on went on convinced people to do uh to go to restaurants or to watch a movie or excited about these things and and when you're the convincer uh, my volleyball team that i'm coaching right now we won our first league game on tuesday and they all ran up to me afterwards and were like jerry can we go to dairy queen and have some ice cream it did not take long for them to, to convince me to eat ice cream that's covered in chocolate. It's really easy to convince me to do so. So we went to Dairy Queen and we fellowshiped and had a good time. See, convincing, we have these opportunities to convince one another of all kinds of different things. Now this week, knowing that we're talking about the Bible, I was contemplating this idea of convincing because I've been a pastor now for over 20 years and I'm just kind of watching and and I've heard many conversations about the Bible and and how people are reading through the Bible and actually not reading through the Bible. And as a pastor, I've been trying to go, okay, how do I convince people to read this scripture, to read the Word of God? And, And I'm actually not shocked anymore to have Christians... Uh, that have dedicated themselves to Jesus Christ, but yet have never, like decade-long Christians, but yet have never read through the entirety of the Scripture. And so again, it's like, how do we do this? How do we convince one another as followers of Jesus Christ to read this Word of God? And so I want to not only try to convince us as Christians to, to, to remember that this is the Word of God, this is what it claims to be, but also the skeptic or the person that maybe be watching as they Google the Bible and maybe my face comes up. And so I want to take some external looks at what the Bible says. I want to take a what, kind of what the Bible itself says and then what do we do with it for now. And so let me pray and then we'll jump in into this. And th- like I said, this is going to be a little bit different. There'll be a lot of kind of statistics, a lot of different things, of what, the Bi- what the world says about what the Bible is, and then we're going to look at what the Bible says about itself. And so... Uh, I pray, I've been praying for you this week that you would get excited and fired up about daily devotion to this Word of God. And so let me pray for us. Uh, Jesus, I thank you so much for uh, your love. I thank you that you are Lord, uh, that you have come in flesh uh, to historically to walk on this earth, to die for our sin, to pay the penalty that we could not pay, to 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 give us your righteousness, to transform 
and give us your righteousness that we might be reconciled back to the Father. And Lord, you've given us the strength and the power and the Spirit of God to indwell us now and to, to be reconcilers, to, to image you in your mission and to go out into all the world and, and be reconcilers, to be convincers uh, of this amazing word uh, that we have before us that everybody on this planet might be reconciled to you and that they will surrender their lives to you. And I pray as followers of Jesus that we will that we will be fired up about this Word of God, that we will be so excited that we cannot go out without a day of reading it, without a day of studying it, without a day of just meditating and memorizing it. And so I pray that, Lord, that it will somewhat change from a duty to a delight for us. And so I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, the three points I kind of listed for you already, and here they are on the screen. Is the Bible something we can trust historically? What does the Bible say about itself? And then what now? Like, what do we do with this information that is before us? So let me, uh, let me uh, uh, just kind of <clears throat> begin here. So this may seem like a small task to convince the church, to convince you that this is the Word of God. But like I said, uh, the fact is the numbers are going down um, in history, in, in generations. That, that one generation might believe that the Bible is God's Word, but the next generation really doesn't hold to that. Even though they've grown up in the church, even though they, they uh, have a father or mother teaching them about Jesus, they still, there's, a, there's a generational decline in looking at the Bible for what it is. So less and less people are reading it. More and more people are believing the lies rather than the vast amounts of evidence that the Bible is in a historical book telling the story of how this world came to be. Like every worldview has to have these four things. How the world came to be. What has gone wrong with the world. Uh, how do we save ourselves from this gone wrong? And then what is coming next? And so if you have a worldview, it has to answer these four points. And the Bible does this throughout this, this story. So needless to say, this is a massive topic to cover for a few reasons, and so we need to start with the first. And so the first question, is the Bible something we can trust historically? Uh, D.A. Carson said it this way, the Bible is deeply grounded in history. The various human authors represent concrete cultures. Like the cultures that the Bible talks about are actually concrete. You can look them up. Languages, historical events, assumptions, idioms. The Bible tells a story, and that story takes place in time and space. D.A. Carson goes on to say, In fact, the human authors of the Bible we have seen are deeply enmeshed in history. So let's look at some of this evidence. See, the Bible is the greatest book ever written. The Bible is the greatest book ever written. This doesn't prove it historically, but it does tell us something about its influence. There are actually more books, more books written about the Bible um, than any other book in history. Like, think about that. That's crazy. There's more books written about the Bible, the, the Scriptures, than any book in history. The Bible is the most popular book of all time. Each year, 100 million, 100 million Bibles are being sold and or given out every year. The YouVersion Bible app has been downloaded over 200 million times. <laughs> it's crazy. The Bible is the best-selling book every year. In fact, it's so popular that it is excluded from the best-selling list because the Bible would be on the top 
seller list every single week, week in and week out. So it's got a whole other category for itself. The Bible is known as the most powerful book of all time. Not only to change the lives of individuals, but all of society as well. Like bad ways too, right? Skeptics and heretics, the ones that have teaching the, the Scripture the wrong way, have used the Bible to justify slavery, violence, marital abuse, and oppression. But the Bible actually changes these types of oppressive acts in man-made cultures by actually teaching against each one of them. The reformer William Wilberforce was driven by his evangelical Christian beliefs on the Bible and led the movement to abolish slavery in the late 18th and early 19th century. Martin Luther King campaigned for civil rights and racial equity, rightly using Scripture. Corrie Ten Boom, the Dutch Christian who risked her life to help Jews escape from the Nazi Holocaust, held to the Scripture and its teaching on forgiveness and loving your neighbor, bringing hope and healing to many who survived and also hope and healing to many who persecuted the Jews. Most famously, her very persecutor, one of the guards in the concentration camps, she forgave. Why? Because the Bible told her to. It changes individuals. The Bible was penned by 40 different authors. Like, think of the, these stats are crazy. 40 different authors over 1,500 years. 1,500 years this book was put together. 40 different authors over three different continents. And these authors didn't know one another. It's not like this day where you could FaceTime one another or you could text one another. What did you say in, in your book? Maybe I'll match some of it. 40 different authors 1,500 years, three different continents, and they didn't have the books. They were penned sometimes hundreds of years apart from one another on a different continent. It's crazy when you start thinking about it and really, really thinking about it. Like, how did that look? You've got all these different authors writing a story in their context, in their culture, in their, at the time of their history, all pointing to one coming Christ. It's amazing. This book is incredible. The Bible contains diverse writing styles, law, historical, poetic, wisdom, apocalyptic, prophecy, and narrative, just to mention a few. And like I mentioned a few weeks ago, textual criticism. Right? This is, a, this is that, that idea of you take the original copy, you look at the span between the original copy and the first copy, and some of those things I mentioned a couple of weeks ago where there's like a thousand years from the original to the copies and there's just a handful of copies. But then when you look at the New Testament, you have the original and the span in between is very short and you have 20,000 plus copies to look at the original and say, is there something different? Like it's, it's incredible the gap is so short, in fact, that when the writings first appeared, you could actually question the eyewitness accounts. What, what I didn't mention is the prophecies mentioned in the Scripture that are verified historically, archaeologically, scientifically, and logically. Because of the time gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a 400-year time gap. There's a quietness that took place from Old Testament to New Testament. So every prophecy has to be over 400 years old from the Old Testament to the New. So in one of my readings, I found that there are more than 300 fulfilled prophecies just in Christ alone. 
300 prophecies fulfilled in just one man. Remember, 40 different authors, 1,500 years prophesying of this one man, and 300 of them are fulfilled. That is crazy. So crazy that if you just take 48, and this is where I did some research, some mathematical research, if you just take 48 of the 300, that's 1 to the power of, or 1 to the 10 to the power of 157. It looks like that. If you just take 48, but there's 300, that's like incalculable. It's impossible unless it is God. 48 prophecies in one man, over 400 to 700 years difference before he was even born. It's incredible. See, I I heard one stat say, like if all 300 were prophesied uh, unto this one man, which they were, and they were fulfilled in Jesus, it's like taking all of the the province of British Columbia, filling it up with loonies two feet deep, right? Some of you, two feet is up to here, but for me, it's like way down here. So two two feet deep of loonies, taking one toonie, throwing that toonie in the loonies, Massive stir stick, stirring that thing up. And then going up a hot air balloon, this is where I've added something. You take a cat with you and you throw that cat out of the hot air balloon, right? (laughs) Dog lovers here, right? Yes, yes, Jared, throw the cat. And you throw the cat and the cat lands and that one toonie sticks to the paw of the left paw of the cat. That's the chances of all 300 of these prophecies being fulfilled in Christ. It's only God who can do these things. See, the matching, the matching the Bible against some other writings is actually laughable. The Bible's 20,000 plus copies is not without error, but the errors are not doctrinal and they are so minute that many are embarrassed to bring them up because then they have to bring the errors of all books. And we need to know this as Christians. Like our, our scripture that we have, there are some changes in it. There are th- some things in it that we need to understand. That, that is, it is not completely perfect in the sense that we looking at all the copies. Let me, let me unpack this. So the heirs, are, the heirs of the Bible that we have out of those 20,000, there's 40 lines of discrepancy. 40 lines. And these 40 lines that we see in the, the discrepancy of the Scripture are grammatical, some grammatical, but never changing the doctrine. Some dots and changes uh, that don't change the, the doctrine of the Scripture. And some actually added words that help translate the Scripture into other cultures. So those are the 40 lines of differences in the 20,000 copies. Now looking at other historical documents like Homer's Iliad, we have 1,700 copies. Okay, 20,000, 1,700 copies. The lines of discrepancy in those 1,700 copies, 1,750 lines of discrepancy. 20,040 lines, not changing one doctrinal statement. 1,700 copies, 1,750 lines of discrepancy. It's laughable. It's laughable. Or Mormonism, starting in 1830, I won't spend too much time on this, but it started in 1830, there have been over 300 doctrinal changes. It's crazy. 
I have no idea other than we have an enemy, Satan, that wants to confuse and distort people. Why would you hold to this? It doesn't make any sense. You got 300 doctrinal changes in 200 years? That's crazy. Compared to it, again to the Bible, 20,000 plus copies, 40 lines of discrepancy, no doctrinal changes in it from two, for 2,000 years. You got Buddhism, one copy, one copy, 1,700 gap, year gap between the original, or sorry, 700 year gap between the original. There is no possible way to know if that one copy is actually from Buddha. No possible way because you've got no copies to back it up. It's one copy. One man's authorship instead of 40 men authoring it and some women in the Scripture. The Muslims and the, Muslims and the Quran run into the same problem. One copy with a 300-year gap from the time of Muhammad. Again, no copies. No way to, uh, to justify and to see the differences over the 300 years. Both of these also, both of these religious texts come with many doctrinal contradictions within their own writings, making it a religion of culture and works rather than like Christianity, which is open to all, open to all the world to believe and put their hope and trust in Jesus because Christianity, Christ ones, they're for all people. It's for all people. See, we could go on about the time gap, the fulfilled prophecies, the first-hand account, the historical documentation, and the archaeological findings which destroy any argument that the stories of the Bible are myth or fable. We could talk about critics that come with these weak arguments that are loud and get a lot of press, but the quickly, they quickly get shut down for the stupidity of their arguments when matched against the vast amount of evidence. Because of the amounts, amounts of copies, they, all the arguments that come continue to get destroyed. There's nothing that stands against the Scripture. Not only do we have the sheer volume of copies, but we also have the preservation of these copies. Sir Frederick Kenyon, who studies ancient writings, writes the interval between the dates of the original and the earliest extent evidence becomes so small so as to be in fact negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the Scripture has come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. It's been removed. These are, these, are, these are people that study this stuff, study historical writings, and he's like, you can't argue against it. Another author writes, there's no religious literature, and this is, this is one in my studies. I've read a lot of books this week. There's no religious literature in the world that has two distinct volumes where one prophesies and the other shows the fulfill, fulfillment of those prophecies. Our scripture... The Old Testament shows hundreds of, hundreds of prophecies and the New Testament shows the fulfillment of them. No other, do, or no other scripture of, of any religion has this. The Bible is an amazing book and must only be considered as the word of God. Not because I say so, because of the vast amount of external evidence and what it says about itself. So that's our next question. That's the external evidence. So what does it say about itself? Well, one of the main arguments that people bring when you use Scripture to testify for Scripture is that type of, uh, this is a type of um, a circular argument. Have you, anybody heard this before? You believe in the Bible. Well, the Bible says it's the Word of God, and so that's a circular argument. Well, we actually live in circular arguments all the time. 
right? We claim to be right. Well, who, why do you think you're right? Well, because I said I'm right. It's a circular argument. Even the arguing against the Bible in that way is a circular argument because you become the ultimate authority. The problem is you become the ultimate authority, right? Like, so if you say I am right, like as a parent, why should I do this, dad? Well, because I said so is a circular argument. You become the authority, which you are the authority in that home. The thing is with the Scripture, we are faulty. The thing is with the Scripture, it is not faulty. It's like I just went through all the external evidence of it. Just the external evidence is showing that it is not faulty. It is from God. And so it is the ultimate authority. And so we have to go to it as the ultimate authority. So, so you see, to use the Bible to justify the Bible is actually perfectly good and right because it claims to be perfect and right. So lastly on this, if you have troubles with this, then find some doctrinal contradiction. Like, this is what I've done in the past in my office. There, there's one lady came to me with a list of questions and she got through two and then it was so cool because she came to Christ right there. And she had a list and she just wanted to debunk Christianity. And we went to second question. By that time, she'd already gone, okay, I, I'm, I give up. Like, what do I do now? Because I constantly challenge people that come into my office, especially like a 20 to 25-year-old. It's often like, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. And I give them one and I go, show me one. Please. Then we'll go and party. Show me one contradiction. 2,000 years of evidence and you think 2,000 years later that you can come in in your 20s and go, hey, there's a lot of contradictions in the Scripture, and that's your argument that you don't believe in it. See, there's so much evidence of the Scripture that proclaims to be the Scripture that we just can't fight it anymore. See, by this time, we need to surrender. The one line that keep, com- that keep com- coming up, I, I read D.A. Carson's book, I- I- The Collecting Writings of Scripture, which is an amazing book. Um, you've got, I read some Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology. I read some, all these different books on, on some of the things that what the Bible is saying. And the one line, the familiar line that kept coming up in all these different writings, I read about four or five different authors. And the one line that kept coming up is, if the Bible is God's word, then every line must be obeyed. For if you don't, then you are disobeying God himself. And the individual that comes into my office and going, it's just full of contradictions. The real root of the heart issue here is the fact that they don't want to, dis- they don't want to obey the word of God. They want an excuse to live a different way. And church, isn't that us as well? Maybe that's why we need convincing to read it. Maybe that's why we need convincing to actually pick it up every morning and evening and throughout the day and, and teach it to our children daily. Maybe because we don't want to obey it. So what does the Bible say about itself? Let me continue. It, it claims to be the very words of God who claims to be the only God. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It claims that the writings of the apostles are the words of God. The New Testament, Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And he's, he's, he's coming to the church of Thessalonica and going, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, 
which you heard from us, you heard from our mouth. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So when they wrote a letter and they penned a letter and gave it to the churches, they believed that that, that was the word of God itself. The Bible is God's God in flesh, John 1.1 1, 1 and 14. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Skipping down to verse 14, And the Word became flesh, and, the, and He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word sustains and gives life. Matthew 4.4, 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. The word is light. Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Bible claims to be the greatest treasure. Matthew 13, 44, A sword sharp enough to cut to the soul of man. And we can all testify to this, can we not? Like when you've surrendered to Jesus Christ, you've been cut deep by the, the sword, the Word of God, the this, this Spirit within you. And we can testify. This is part of our testimony. To be without error in Deuteronomy 32, to be sufficient, 2 Corinthians 12.9, and to never be moved, to be unchanging, down to the smallest iota in Hebrews 13.8 uh, and Matthew 5.18. A word that sustains life and speaks life into existence. A word so powerful that man's wisdom doesn't compare. A word that is never to be added to and taken from or promises of plagues will be placed upon that individual. And the word that gives the very reason and purpose for existence that all humans long for. The Bible itself affirms its truth and its godliness. This is the authority of Scripture. Psalm, 1, or Psalm 19, 9 and 10 says, The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. This is how we are to long for the word. David also pans the different, just come into mind, it's like my, my, I'm like a deer that pants for living water. Like do we pant for the living water of the word of God? The Bible is so life-changing and precious that many have lost family, experienced pain and suffering and lost their lives because they wanted to desperately, de so desperately to help others see and hear about its worth. They are, they're losing their lives. They're going through pain and suffering. They're getting uh, beaten and persecuted and dying on, uh, from flames, from burning up. We have, we have the Puritans, the, the, the apostles themselves, all dying. Why? For the testimony of the Word of God. To convince other people. Not to go to Dairy Queen but to read the very Word of God that we each have. Can you, can you imagine living like this? Like if we actually believe this stuff. Like I don't know if you're, if you're kind of glossing over on me here or not, but this excites me like crazy. And I'm praying, my, my prayer this week was that it excites you too. All the external evidence that the Bible is real. The internal evidence of what the Bible is talking about. Man, may this fire you up. Like if we have the scripture, and actually it's God's word, wouldn't we carry it with us always? Like it's different now. We have smartphones that we can actually carry it with us always, but it's never outright noticeable. Or we sit at coffee shops, and I'm trying to do more of that, and, and just be in public with my faith, 
so that people will maybe ask a question because, man, I want to give them an answer. And even being bold enough to actually go over to another, another table and actually go, hey, have you ever read the Bible? It's the greatest book in the world. Man, if we truly believe that this is the Word of God, wouldn't we act like this? Wouldn't we live a little bit crazier? See, the Bible is worthy, is worthy, Revelation 4.11. Still to this day, when people come to Christ, they will be disowned as a child from their family. We have people in the, on this planet right now, right now, coming to Christ, and their whole family will disown them. The Word of God is transformative. It changes you. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 20. It's on the screen there. It's going to be two slides long, but listen to this. Take, take notice of this. And I prayed this already to start us off. From now on, so now that we know the Bible is the Word of God, external evidences, internal evidences, and we're going to continue on. From now on, Therefore, church, not just church here, but church in this world, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if any of you are in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now hold on there a second. Christ came down to reconcile us to the Father. Now that's, we don't use that word oftentimes in the day and age, reconciliation. Sometimes we do, but if you're a kid, sometimes it's forgiveness. Sometimes I had a bad relationship with this person. Now it's made new. It's made fresh. We, we're back together. We're hanging out together again. This is essentially what has taken place here. Christ came down because our relationship was horrible b- between us and the Father. And Christ came to bind it up again. To make it new. And He did this by pain and suffering on the cross and shedding His blood for each one of us for our penalty that we might be good again with Christ, with God the Father. So we have this. Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us now this ministry. What? Hold on a second. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of this reconciliation. And here's another, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you now, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So hold on a second. Christ came down to reconcile, to pay the penalty of our sin, so that we can have the the, the right relationship again with God the Father. And then he goes, friend, you have that ministry now. You have that ministry to go and forgive your neighbor and to love on your neighbor and to tell them about Jesus Christ, to, to, to share the good news of Jesus Christ, to reconcile your neighbors to the Father, to help them see the Bible is the Word of God. 
that Jesus was a historical figure that walked on this earth that he proclaimed to be God himself. And he's given me this task to reconcile us back to the Father. So first, we need to recognize our sin. We need to confess our sin to Jesus Christ and to see him as the authority, to see him as God, who he claimed to be. Would you give your life to Jesus today? Would you surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and, get, and believe in His Word that He's left for us and His task is to now go out into all the nations and to reconcile one another to the Father because this is what Christ did. And He's given us this ministry. See, the Bible is transformative. It's transformative. It has a transformation message. And this is what we're called to do, friends. To see the Bible as a transformation word of God that transforms ones from dead to life. The Bible proclaims to be the word of God, starting with God writing on tablets of rock, speaking to his prophets, showing up in the person of Jesus, indwelling us in the person of the Spirit, and one day breaking through the veil, redeeming us in glory. This is the process that has taken place. God is a God that speaks. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. By His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And I remind you again of John 1, 1. This Son, this Jesus, is in the beginning... He was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So He is with us here as the Word of God. So we tangibly have the Bible. We tangibly have Christ. We have the external evidence that this sucker never changed. And the changes are so minute. There's no doctrinal difference. It's telling the same story, even though there's 40 lines of discrepancy. So in the Bible, it is an inerrant and is sufficient. So today, if you want to hear God speak to you, you read your Bible out loud. That's what you do. Lord, I want you to speak to me. All right, I'm just going to open the Word and start reading it out loud. And I'm going to hear the words of God Himself. Or I'm going to turn on a Bible app that will just read it for me and I'll just listen to the, my Father, my my. Heavenly Father, my, my Savior Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, speak to me. See, the books of the Bible have been placed together to tell one story of a coming king, a king that will redeem his people. The king then is introduced after 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, fulfilling over 300 prophecies, how he would be born, where he would be born, and how he would suffer, die, and for what purpose. The Bible is an ordered book 1,500 years, 40 different authors, three different continents. Friends, the Bible is telling the one story, a story of salvation from our sin and rebellion, a story that the God who speaks, hears, and acts wants you to know and fall in love with. But not just fall in love with the Word, but, he, but who the Word points to, and it points to Jesus. Like He's written all this for us, for our joy and our, our glory in Him. See, this, this is a book with enough external evidence that no one can deny it based on the evidence. Denial at this point can only be categorized as rebellion. 
because there's too much tangible and historical evidence. See, this is a book that points to truth, not legend or myth. Tim Keller want, makes a very compelling argument when, with, when myth is brought up. He says this. It's not on the screen, so just listen up. It's going to be a little bit longer of a read here. First, he says that the Gospels are written too early to be myth. The first readers were all well able to remember the events which the Gospels claim to report. Any fabrication would have been obviously or obviously ignored. So if there was myth or, or fable, it, there, there's too close of an evidence or of the people around. You can actually go knock on the door and go, hey, did you, do you actually do this? Too much evidence of, of this. So just any time kind of things are br- brought up about this, it's just instantly ignored. Secondly, he states this, that the Gospels are too counterproductive to, the, to be legends. Right? Too counterproductive to be legends. If the early church wanted to fabricate stories about Jesus that would make them and their writing more credible, why include so many details that seem to undermine such an aim? For example, he gives three. Why have women as the first witness to the resurrection when the culture routinely rejected a woman's testimony as admissible in court? So back in biblical times, if you were a woman and you went to court, you wouldn't even be allowed to testify. But yet, over and over and over again, Jesus and in the scriptures use women to testify about who he is. Why have Jesus in Gethsemane asking his father if he might be spared the agony of the cross? Is that the sort of thing you would expect from a fictional triumphant hero? You never see this in the Quran. You never see this in other uh, writings. Religious writings, they're always like unstoppably perfect. And and, and it's amazing. And Jesus is perfect here, but he's like asking the Father to take away this pain. And why make the apostles appear so laughably slow to believe Jesus? Why make Peter, one of the most prominent leaders in the early church, appear so cowardly unless it was what actually happened? And then thirdly, Keller writes, the Gospels are too detailed to be legends. I found this one really interesting. See, they're packed full of tiny, apparently innocuous pieces of information that make no sense unless explained as eyewitness details. And he goes on to say, he says, remember that the modern novel form wasn't around until about 300 years ago. So this level of detail in an ancient document would be completely unprecedented, unprecedented for a fictional story. Again, there's so much evidence that this is the Word of God. The author C.S. Lewis, professor of English literature at both Oxford and Cambridge, conclude, again, if you're a professor of literature, all you do is read and study writings. And he says this, I have been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, and myths all of my life. I know what they are like, and I know none of them are like this. None of them. The Bible is different. It's different externally and internally. So what now? What do we do now? Like, what do we do as a church, as a body, as a family of God? What do we do now? When we come to the Scripture, when we come externally and look at all these evidences, which is just a bunch of stats put together, but man, they sure back our faith, don't they? I know it backs mine. I was so encouraged this week reading all this stuff, and I encourage you to do a deep dive into this stuff as well. Like, it's all there. It's really easy information to find. And man, it's so good to just renew your faith and the word that we have is so sure and trustworthy. And so what do we do with it? 
And we'd fail miserably, miserably if we walked away and just not done anything and challenged ourselves and kept one another accountable in our community groups to go, how was your Bible reading this, this week? Like actually asking each other, knowing that you're going to be asked as well. And man, as your pastor, I want to shepherd you well and I want to do accountability better as a church. Like I've gone to church all my life as much as I can remember. I'll, I know my parents said my first five years we went to church. <laughs> Don't remember any of those years. But after five, I remember being at church all the time, sweating like crazy when I was a little kid, tie like sideways, buttoned down to here because I was so sweaty, hanging out in church, playing with my buddies. And I loved it. But what are we going to do with the Bible? What are we going to do with the, the Word of God that is transformative and keep each other accountable in this? How are we going to walk in this? See, we can continue to be complacent. We can continue to just kind of keep our, our Bible on the, on the shelf and let it get dusty. Or we can actually open it and set times for it. I have a friend in this room that wakes up at 5.30 and reads the Bible and then goes and works out. Sacrificing to stay up a little bit later to go to bed earlier. I have another friend that makes sure that they read the Bible before their coffee. Challenging themselves to beat down their body first and foremost. Why? So I can win the eternal prize. I want to make my body a slave. Or we can humble our... See, see we, can, we can continue to humble ourselves, seek forgiveness for our past slothfulness and surrender our lives to the devotion of hearing the Word of God, reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God, memorizing the Word of God, and meditating on it. And I've used this kind of analogy. Uh, I'll take this kind of little piece of paper. Oftentimes, just using the hand because we all have one, at least one of them. And if you hear the Word of God, but don't meditate on it, it will just eventually fall away from you. If you read or hear and study the Word, or hear and read the Word of God, but never meditate on it, it will eventually fall away. If you read it, hear it, study it, but never meditate on it, it will eventually fall away. So we're called to also memorize. But if you memorize Scripture, I've memorized a lot of Scripture, but yet I can't recall, recall it because I have been complacent in meditating on it. So that meditating on it is like uh, one author puts it, meditation like a mumbling a mumbling to yourself constantly out loud and it's a meditating like maybe you're just sharing scripture as you walk down the street and you, you, you just mumble the words to yourself or you mumble the words to of, of your Bible study in the morning and what, what was the, the thing that stuck out to you in that, in that study so that you are meditating on it through the day and I challenged the kids this morning before we did all the setup and, and I prayed and we, re we read through 1 Corinthians 9, 25 and 26 and, and we were talking about like how, how we want to run the race for the eternal prize and there's, there's people that run the race just to get a prize. 
and it's, it's useless. Like, like we read through Ecclesiastes and studied through Ecclesiastes, this eternal prize or this prize that we run the race for is just, just a wreath or a ribbon or a medal. But man, we as Christians, we get to run a race for where? To win the eternal prize of heaven. The eternal prize of Jesus Christ who came and, and paid for us. This is the eternal prize we long for. So let's, read, let's hear, read, study, memorize, meditate. Dia Carson writes it this way, and I'll close with these quotes. The aim of thoughtful Christians, after all, is not so much to become masters of Scripture, but to be mastered by it. Be mastered by it, both for God's glory and His people's good. He later writes, because the Bible is God's Word, it is vitally important to cultivate humility as we read it, to foster meditative prayerfulness as we reflect and study, to seek the help of the Holy Spirit as we try to understand and obey it, to confess sin and pursue purity of heart and motive and relationships as we grow, grow in understanding. And failure in these areas may produce scholars, may produce scholars, but not mature Christians. See, the goal is to move from the duty of reading the Scripture to delighting in it. It does start oftentimes as duty, but may it move from duty to delight. Let me close with Revelation 19.13. I've shared the gospel a few times as we've walked through this, but Jesus came to, to pay the penalty that we deserve, and that penalty is death. He had to shed his blood for us that we may not have to shed our blood for our own sin. And that's a completely unfair he paid our penalty so that we didn't have to pay it before the Father, and He did it on the cross of Christ. And then that great transformation took place where all of His righteousness went on to us and all of our sin went on to Him. And Revelation reads it this way. He says, He one day is going to come back and He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which He is called is the Word of God. It's the Bible that we have that we have in our possession. And man, may we get excited about reading it this week, in the weeks to come, in the months to come, in the years to come. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is rich, that it is historical, that it is true and trustworthy. Lord, I thank you that uh, you are unchanging. And that you just show your unchangingness in, in, within your own scripture. And so I just pray, Lord, that we will get excited about the word of God that we have, that we tangibly have, that we can have in our hands daily, that we can read and study and, and, be, and grow in it. And Lord, that we will be challenged today, if we are those people that have never read the whole Bible, that we will be dedicated to then now read it. Not feeling guilty or condemned, but Lord, not allow shame or uh, the enemy's tactics to, uh, to, to discourage us. But Lord, that we will set those aside. That we push those aside and actually go, you know what? It's okay. I just want to now change. And so help us be transformed, Jesus. By your word that it will be profitable for our growth in you and that we will be transformed into doing the, the very thing you've called us to do.
that we will no longer be fleshy people, that, but that we will be spirit people to, to go out into our worlds, into our neighborhoods, into the, the, the shops and the coffee shops and the, and the grocery stores and, and into the rec centers, and that we will be proclaimers of the, of, of the message of reconciliation back to the Father, and that you are that central piece of that story, Jesus. And so help us be proclaimers of you as we read and study and memorize and meditate. Lord, help us be faithful. And I, and I pray uh, this in Jesus' name. Amen.